and, and he left the company because he didn't believe in it anymore. But it gave me a lot of energy to, to continue the journey and uh, not to stop, of course. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the very first episode of the Big Exit Show, the podcast brought to you by Peak Capital, where we talk to successful European tech entrepreneurs about the exit of their company and the path how they got there. My name is Remy Gieling, journalist, public speaker and podcast host. And our co-host is, as always, the co-founder and managing partner of Peak Capital, Johan van Mil. This is our very first episode. Why this podcast? I think the main reason is I'm a person, I'm a frequent listener of a podcast. And uh, what I like, especially in podcasts, is that you can find topic-based relevant subjects, right? If you want to hire a VP sales or want an international uh, reseller network, whatever, that's a very easy way to, to get some information. And what I found is that the most important thing in life for a founder, but also for a VC, of course, is the most important uh, moment is, of course, an exit. And it's very hard to find relevant information on podcasts on exits. So that's why the reason why we as Peak Capital started this podcast to spread out the good news on, es uh, on exits, not only, you know, content on this topic, but also, you know, to share learnings from founders who've done it and who recently sold their company. Yeah, what, what's our promise to the listeners? What do we hope they get to learn? Exiting more, of course, <laughs> but apart from that, no, I think mainly learning, learning from others how they can exit their company um, and always realize that there's always the sun behind the clouds, right? Because I think we all as an entrepreneur, we know that it's very hard to run a company these days and it can be really struggling. And once you hear, you know, energetic stories of other companies, other founders who just sold their company, I think it's a massive motivation. So it's also for me that part is important. And we know your time is limited, so we try to keep it to 40 minutes or less. And we start with the beginning. What's their origin story? Then we move on to the growth phase and we end with, as you guessed, the exit. And for the very first episode, we asked Geert Jan Smits, co-founder of the very successful Dutch furniture store Flinders to join us. Johan, you have a close relationship with uh, Geert Jan. How did that came to be? Yeah, because we as P-Capital were the first institutional investors in Flinders. So we've been on the on that path with uh, Geert Jan partly. Yeah, I interviewed Geert Jan last year for an article about starting businesses during crises, and uh, which Geert did twice. And what struck me was uh, that he thrives on headwind. He said a crisis is the best time to start a new company. Uh, do you agree with that statement, Johan? Fully. I think it's because I think a lot of successful companies we see nowadays, like uh, whether it's uh, Uber or Airbnb, I think the best moment to start a company is when things are really changing, not only you know in society, but also in terms of funding, also in staff needed, etc. So it's the best time to start, to kickstart your company. Let me introduce our honored guest. After a few years of working with a consultancy firm, he knew it was time to venture on his own to start Jungle Minds, a leading Dutch internet consultancy firm in the Netherlands and Belgium. He made an exit in 2010 to start Flinders, the design furniture store that sells beautiful interior products that make you smile every day. Flinders has about 120 employees, about 36,000 items in stock, a warehouse of over 9,000 square meters and over 23 million euros in revenue. We will talk to him about scaling companies and making exits at the right time. Ladies and gentlemen, Geert-Jan Smits. Welcome. Thank you. Geert-Jan, um, we always start with a very simple question. What's the heroic origin story of the name Flinders? Well, that's a pretty good one, I think. Uh, maybe you know Matthew Flinders. He discovered a long time ago Australia. And we thought, just like Matthew Flinders, we want to discover the unique design furniture industry uh, for everybody so that we can make it accessible 
Um, so Flinders is in Discover. Good story, isn't it? This is the heroic story. What what <laughs> what, what what is the real story, Geertjan? Well, journalists liked it, you know, that we are a discoverer. But the real story is that me and Matthijs Kanes, my other uh, my, my partner who founded uh, the company as well, is that we drank some uh, whiskey at the night and we were thinking, okay, we're going to start a company. Let's look at a name. Oh, we don't know it yet. So another sip and another one and another one. <laughs> and I think after a few hours, we uh, discovered Flinders as a name. And we, of course, we looked at uh, the URLs, if it was still available. And well, I think for $5,000, we, we bought uh, the URL. So, Gert-Jan, the first thing you remember about starting Flinders, what was it? Was it the first day? First day. Well, it was. Um, I was still uh, in the office of uh, Jungle Mines. Uh, I rented a small area, and it was easy because then we had at least lunch. Um, yeah, it was pretty opportunistic because I knew nothing about design, nothing about the industry. Uh, I knew no brands, no labels. I just thought, well, I know a lot about digital, so it should be easy to start a a fresh new web shop. So if the first day was full of energy and uh, well, let's do it in a few weeks and uh, start a company. And then one year later, how was the first year? <laughs> yeah, the first years I can say was pretty tough. Uh, it took about a year to to, to build uh, the web shop. That um, was uh, pretty intense. Um, and I think we were pretty good in uh, estimating the, the costs of the company. But the revenues were less than 50% of what we expected. So, the, um, yeah, we didn't make any profit the first years. So it was pretty tough. And those days, you mentioned that it took you a long time to, to get a web shop, right? Those days, you didn't have any Shopify solutions, et cetera, right? It was, no, uh, it was it was all own build based on the Magento platform, but still a lot of uh, yeah own build software. Even the checkout was fully built by ourselves and... Yeah. Yeah, most entrepreneurs start with with they see a problem in the market. Uh, which, which problem did you, were you trying to solve? Well, I think that, that was pretty clear because, uh, especially in the design furniture business, uh, when you try to buy, say, a Vitra chair, uh, you had to go to the local store. Um, together with an advisor, you, you say, okay, I want to pick that one with a wide shelf and nice wooden legs. And then the, the guy says, okay, that takes eight to 10 weeks and then, then it will be at your home. So I thought, ah, that's the problem. You know, in, in those days, it was normal to wait six to 10 weeks for your uh, furniture. So you, you wanted design furniture the next day delivered, basically. Yeah, basically like the cool blow model, you order it to, uh, online today and it gets delivered tomorrow. And it wasn't possible in those days, definitely not. How did you handle that at that time? Because I think uh, the, the producers, the brand owners, <coughs> were very strict, especially on who would sell these kind of brands online. How did you, how did you do that? Yeah, it was pretty difficult because all the, the, the nice brands, they said, um, how many meters do you have for me? How many meters? I'm going to build a web shop. Uh, no, 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 I want to know where's the store and how many meters do you have for me? So it, it was all physical meters, yeah. They were thinking meters and I said, well, we're based in Amsterdam. Oh, no, 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 there are a lot of stores already in Amsterdam, so it's definitely not possible to become a dealer. But I'm going to be an onliner. And it's online, we don't know anything about it, especially the guys from Italy. You know, the internet penetration there was like 5% or something. <laughs> so they didn't appreciate internet. But the Scandinavians did, luckily. They did, yeah. And they were pretty new, and happily for us, uh, like 
big brands now, Scandinavian brands like Hey, Mudo, Norma Copenhagen, were then very small. And I think we were one of the first dealers in the Netherlands selling those products online as well as offline. Uh, and that, that helped us to, uh, to start. So we, we really started as a startup. So, uh, so we started with a lot of young people. I think the average age was like me, 24 or something. <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I was a little older. But the average age was about 24, 25. You actually started out with, with one developer. Yeah, I still know his name because after one year, he told me, it was Gerard, he told me, well, Gerjan, it's okay to stop. <laughs> you know, it's okay. <laughs> it's, it's okay that you stop Flinders because it's not working. And, and he left the company because he didn't believe in it anymore. But it gave me a lot of energy to, to continue the journey and uh, not to it, stop, it, of it, course. It, it takes some guts to tell the founder of a company as an employee, well, <laughs> yeah. maybe you should, qu you should quit. <laughs> yeah, he said, well, I said, it's okay to stop, you know. Like, yeah, he was a little older than me and had some more experience. And in those days, it was pretty tough. You know, we lost about 400,000 euros a year. Mm -hmm. uh, and I had to pay it for myself. You actually had to yeah. sell your house. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not a good story, especially when you have children and a wife that's uh, not really happy with uh, the fact that you're selling your uh, house. But um, the only way to go on was to invest in inventory. So it was more inventory and continue doing what we were doing or stop the company and... Uh, to pre-finance pre, pre the furniture, right? That's yeah. what you mean. Yeah, yeah that, that was the basic model. Yeah. So first you finance the furniture, the stock, and then it's possible to sell and to convince people to buy with Flinders because they get it the next day. How, how much money did you personally invest in Flinders? 1.2 million. Wow. Yeah, I had to look it up when I exited. <laughs> <laughs> it was like they gave some money in, but was it putting more your than balls the on the table, right? <laughs> 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 yeah, and that, that was enough for me yeah. back then. Yeah. Yeah. So. And, and, and based on your reaction, yo, it's 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 not the case with all entrepreneurs. No, certainly not. No, no, no. Uh, I think normally you would say everything between 10 and 200k max, but normally 1.2 million euros. You never see that. That's yeah, no. pretty crazy. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. That's a firm belief. Yeah. The growth phase. Gert-Jan, when did you notice you, you, you started to get traction when you figured, wow, we really got something here? Yeah, that's, I don't know if, if it's clear to really point a date. Uh, you know, the first year we did 300,000 euros, the second year 900,000, the year after one and a half million. So we, we grew all the way from the start. We, we didn't make any profit. Um, but more and more people were talking about Flinders. We got some returning customers, visitors. So I think after three years, we could say, yeah, we've got something that's here to stay, I would say, yeah. And we were reaching towards profitability, always reaching to, <laughs> towards, you could say. <laughs> no. and, and you so already sold your house, right? And, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there so was only one. Was, yeah. Yeah. No, I think a year later, it was time to, to, to look for uh, external capital. 2014, I believe it was. Because retail is a low margin business. How did you manage to scale up? Yeah, w w the conclusion was you need external capital for that to, uh, to really be able to scale up. Uh, it's the only way. And what we saw in our market is there will be only one winner in every country. And we wanted to be the one in the luxury segment. And uh, how, how, how did you um, figure out where to f f find the money? Because it's, y you can always maybe go to a bank 
and say we want to yeah, we, we we need a uh, we we need a, we need inventory so just give us the money and we'll pay you a bit of uh <laughs> yeah you would say that but you know it was 2000 even in those days 2010 2013 the the, the 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 after days of the financial crisis mm. so banks didn't lend anything we couldn't get any money because also we we didn't make any profits so did you try did you did, did, did you call we, them? we tried everything you know and and the only guys that didn't say no of course <laughs> were the, <laughs> <We're> the <VCs, laughs> right yeah, were the ones sitting uh, <laughs> no I, I and i think i make a round of i think about 20 different venture capital firms and we all told the story and then you find okay this one is not really interested in in the sector or in the phase that we are in and um what yeah. what um what made you decide to this this was a good venture yeah because mm -hmm. these days peak is more or less uh, a saas company you're, you're looking for young ambitious saas companies and platform and marketplaces yeah. and platform and marketplaces yeah. But but Flinders was 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 an inventory company yeah. as well. Yeah, they, they, we did uh, this investment from our second fund from P Capital Two, and at that time we had a broader scope than we currently with our fourth fund had. So we yeah. did also e-commerce plays, marketplace, SaaS companies, etc. So different, a broader angle. Those but were I the think days. what's really what was uh, those were the days in this. But <laughs> what, what was really convincing to us was Geert Jan as a founder. Because I think if you want to invest in a young company like this, I think you know you want you want to see the energy, the belief of the founder has, right? And if a founder, as he just mentioned, right, put in 1.2 million euro of his own money, and therefore I still remember when you did the pitch at my office at that time mm -hmm. because we didn't have a peak capital office at that time because we were own, all of course running our own company. So you were pitching at my uh, I don't know which company it was actually, but <laughs> one of the one of the one of the the companies I started. And I remember that you had a product guy pit doing the pitch. Yeah. And he wasn't, I still remember that, and he was the shareholder. He's a very young guy, but really ambitious and through belief in the company, right? And I think yeah. as an investor, as an early stage investor, you want to see that, you want to feel that. And and I think that's completely, that's what happened, right? That, 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 that's yeah. interesting because um, as I, as a, as, a, as a simple journalist, imagine these these pitches go the, the the founder goes in and he he's as uh, as convincing as he can be to pitch the company but you decided to uh, let one of your employees do the, I, the, the, the pitch we did it together but um, I wanted to show that that Flinders wasn't just me you know there are more people involved and they were also enthusiastic and uh, full of skills so that's why I decided to to bring someone along is it is that a common practice no, never seen it before, <laughs> never seen it afterwards that somebody yeah. lets this uh, one of his employee uh, pitch. But I think it's very smart, right? Because I think all, mainly all VCs want to invest in, you know, uh, uh, multi-founder teams or not yeah. single founder. And Geert-Jan was a single founder. Of course, you had a founder which is not active in the company, but more an investor in the company at True. that time. But by presenting himself also with another employee in this case you 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 got past that point also right you pitch yourself as a, as a as an entrepreneur with yeah. very with the entrepreneurial vein in the blood of your employees also and i think yeah. that's really smart to to pitch your company because we all, always try to do you know to to get the feeling to all the people around you and make them as enthusiastic as you are yourself what's what's the biggest i always like failure stories what was maybe a big failure in 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 the growth phase of the company Oh, there are too many. <laughs> I think. Yeah. What were some of the hurdles you faced yeah. back then? Yeah, a lot of hurdles, and uh, but th th that's okay. I always say, fail fast. So, you know, try everything, especially in, in the starting phase of your company. 
and see what works and what doesn't work. Yeah, you, uh, you tried a lot. You opened stores at some places. Yeah, I think we tried a little bit too much uh, in, on hindsight. Uh, we started in China, actually. Uh, I think that was too opportunistic af afterwards when you look back. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I live in Amsterdam, and when I go, went to the, the Bajkorf, you saw all those buses full of Chinese people going to the Bajkorf and buy all those, you know, too expensive stuff. So I thought, well, why, why do they go all the way to the Netherlands? Why don't we sell beautiful stuff in China? So we started at Tmall, a Flinders store, uh, with, of course, a beautiful design. But it had nothing to do with our strategy of becoming a market leader in Europe. <laughs> 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 but it was just, I just thought, yeah. well, it's an amazing, good idea, so why not do it? <laughs> but, you know, we started, and then you find out that the transportation from Amsterdam all the way to a local Chinese person, that's almost impossible. And, you know, we don't know the language, so we didn't have any customer service in, Ch in Chinese. We didn't have local online marketing. We couldn't do that. We couldn't... Uh, yeah, we all had to do that locally in China, but we had no presence in China. So it was all from here that we had to hope that it was going well. Well, there were some sales, but especially during double uh, uh, eleven, uh, without any profit. So yeah, I think after two years, we had an amazing time. We learned a lot, uh, and we thought, well, that's that's enough. Well, you could say you were a multinational back then, so that Definitely. counts for something. Yeah, yeah, it was a good story, I think. <laughs> yeah. I think after Ahold, we were the second company active in, in China on Tmall. Uh, not successfully, but uh, <laughs> 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 we were the second, yeah. But I think this is good, right, to, do, to just test it as an entrepreneur, right? Test and validate and see how it works and then stop it. Exactly, right? and yeah. when it doesn't work, stop it immediately. Yeah. Don't cry about it. It's not, that's, that's just learn from it. What is, this, what is the decision you should have taken faster? Because this is the decision you've taken, right? Yeah. It's a decision where you look now back and, and think, I should have acted on that faster. Um, we also were active in Germany. And we thought it was, uh, it was our dream to become the market leader in Europe. Uh, so Germany is a very big country and very interesting. But, but we also heard a lot of webshops from the Netherlands failing in Germany, actually. It's a... It's, it's pretty difficult to be uh, successful there. It's, it's such a big country. Um, transportation costs are twice as high as in the Netherlands or Belgium. The returns are twice as high as in our own country. Uh, so I think we could have decided earlier to stop there and purely focus on the Benelux. You were a single founder, or at least you had a co-founder, but he wasn't uh, especially involved with the, with the company, just as a shareholder. Um, uh, who do you, did you go to for advice or for inspiration? Or some people have a coach, some people go through growth programs. What did you do? Yeah, I have actually a small group of friends that are also entrepreneurs, uh, three of them, and they are almost in the same phase as I was uh, with Flinders. And I think we talked to each other on the phone, by chat or uh, in, in the restaurant with too much drink, uh, of course, <laughs> and, and the bills that were always too high. I don't know why, <laughs> but uh, they really helped me. I and mean, I think we help each other. There's a guy from uh, Bell Simple, Brandfield and Hotel Specials. And uh, that really helps, you know, to, to be able to tell a story or a question or a problem to to guys that have the same experiences. That's really, uh, really good. Yeah, find some people around you who go who are going through the same motions. Yeah, in a totally different sector, but you know, in, in the same phase of, uh, of growth. And of course, next to that, uh, the external investors also can really help. They have a good network, uh, can 
can uh, contact you to other people that have the same experiences. The exit phase. Geert-Jan, what was the moment you, you decided for yourself you wanted to make an exit out of this, 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 this amazing company you've built? I'm not sure if it's, it's, it's a decision you make yourself. I think you make it uh, with a team. And I know Johan played a pretty big part in that. Um, but it was okay. You know, it's, um, you have conversations about the next phase of your company. And we decided there were two different uh, routes to take. We could do a buy and build strategy or sell 100% of the shares. And for me, the, the second uh, route, the selling 100% of the shares, was something I had to digest first and think about. Is it the right timing? But, you know, after a few weeks, I thought, yeah, what the fuck? <laughs> this is a good timing. I'm doing this for 10 years, and, well, maybe that's a, it's, a, it's a good timing. And, wh and when did you decide, uh, uh, when, when, did the start, uh, when did you start thinking about, you know, uh, preparing that buy and build? I know it was January 2020. Yeah. Um, and I think the, the good thing was I, I started uh, with a, a round, again, drinking coffee with all the various uh, parties involved, like the strategic partners, uh, venture capital parties. Um, and I, I, um, I found out that they really appreciate to talk to the founder first before getting a deck, you know, from a financial advisor and with a big story and all the things. Um, so I think in, in the first month, I just drank a lot of coffee and I could already feel if there was any interest, uh, but also get to know the, the different parties a little bit better. I think that was the excellent start. Did you, did you had a few companies in mind who would be able to acquire Flinders and, yeah. and, and, and take over the legacy? Yeah, I think that there was a list of, say, five to ten different companies. And in the end, those companies were the ones that were really interested. Uh, and although we hired as, uh, an advisor that, that contacted maybe a hundred extra different companies and VCs, but uh, in the end, it are the, the personal contacts you have that really make the difference. Yeah, that's, I think that's also very relevant, right? If you sell the company, I think you should have enough appetite for getting the right price for the company. So if you have then only one potential buyer, then you have a limited a price effect there. So you want to talk as much uh, bias as you can. So how, how do you go in uh, with these talks? Do you do it, did you do it together with Johan? Uh, I just did it alone. We went to uh, yeah, a lot of cafes and just, you know, I had a coffee. And I found out that they really like to do it. And uh, it was interesting. Yeah. I think that's really great how Geert-Jan handled that. Big compliment for Geert-Jan because um, uh, always, I think always the founders should have the, these talks, right? But I think Geert-Jan's big benefit is, you know, it's a very, it's also also in this podcast, right? He's a very nice guy, always very en energetic, but also very friendly to people. So if there's one guy or girl who can sell the company, right, it's always the founder. How did you, how does that feel for you? Because it can also maybe feel a bit lonely that you're, you're there on your own, making these big decisions for lots of people back in the office. Yeah, but on the other hand, I think as an entrepreneur, you're always a little bit lonely. You know, in the company, nobody ever will give you a, a how do you say it, a klopje? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> a, a pedal on the back. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah or it, it's pretty lonely. So I, I'm, I'm used to that, I think. But, but of course, there are always friends around you, but within the company, it's, yeah, I think you're, in, you're pretty alone. Moving up to the to the part that realizing well maybe it is time to sell to sell 100% of the company to another one. 
it it must somewhere feel well uh, a bit like 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 did, did you have like a process of mourning it at, at, at any point mm, no i think it's more of a process of liberation you could say because uh, i think every person has his own sweet spot in where way it fits the best in, in a company and for me it's it's in the starting phase of a company that's where i get the most energy but also where my role is the, is, is is the best i think so after 10 years of working for a company, although it's your own company, I think my, my uh, personal involvement is less. So uh, for me, it, it was more like a liberation not to have all the talks and the, the daily meetings anymore. So yeah, for me, it was, was good. You didn't feel sad at any point that you were of course leaving it's, this it's, you know, ship behind. Uh, one day you're the big CEO of an interesting company, and the next day, you're just alone and <laughs> <laughs> nobody's looking at you and so th that's something yeah you have to digest i guess but um that's good that's healthy i think yeah, to me it sounds also that that your uh, uh feels to me like an emotional decision right when you sell your company but you yeah. somehow didn't take it emotionally right you take it pretty well rational uh, the whole process was taking one year yeah so you have one year of time to digest it and um but for, i think for me personally it was a good step yeah and i think you helped me also uh, learning that it's a good good step to you know once sell the company. And what about what was your personal motivation to sell the company at that time? Because I recall the discussion that we had, right, to go either for buy and build route or for for sale of the company. What was your? At yeah, that time? I think for me buy and build was was good as well because then I could be entrepreneurial again. You know, uh, buy other companies, becoming larger and bigger. Um, but more and more the talks went into selling 100% of the shares. So uh, more and more, I felt well. That's that's a good way to go. What what people you you, you talk to a lot say about this pro this process? What did you, your your entrepreneurial friends say? What did your wife say about it? Yeah, follow your heart and follow your instinct, and you know you can make it as rational as possible and look at the valuation and the price. But in the end, I don't think that's that's the the thing that makes you most happy. Uh, for me, it's to be an entrepreneur. And to, to start another company is what really motivates me. So the first thing I did when I sold the company was uh, set up another one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what all the fun is for me. Hey, how, how did that process uh, went? Because you, you just mentioned, right, it, uh, you, you took the decision January 2020. Yeah. Uh, the deal was done in December yeah. 2020, so it was a year. How, how did roughly that process went? Yeah, I think for a month or three, there were the coffee talks, my personal talks with uh, potential investors or, or buyers. Uh, and then Draystar for us came into play and they- the investment made, banker? Yeah, they made the deck that took us two to three months, pretty long, but I think, so then it was the summer. So we decided to start actually the process after summer mm -hmm. um, and give the potential interested uh, companies two months, I believe to talk to us, to the management, uh, to look at the deck and to, to make a, a potential valuation all at the same time. It was in September, October, and then we had two months of uh, negotiations. What were what were some of the um, non-negotiables for you? Non-negotiables? Um, that was uh, probably uh, stopping the store what we did, <laughs> actually. <laughs> 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 now, for me personally, 
<laughs> you know, the buyer was only interested in online. Yeah. But uh, actually, Flinders was a multi-channel operation. Yeah. And I was pretty proud of the store that we set up in 10 years' time uh, with a lot of sweat and work. A very cool interior as well. Yeah. <laughs> a yeah, helicopter hanging from the ceiling great or name, something like that. But still, the, the buyer said, we only want to buy online. So it was my personal uh, thing to understand that uh, we had to, to close the store and also um, say say bye-bye to the, the store personnel who were 14 people uh, that, uh, that had to look for, for another job. I have a feeling that it was the toughest decision for you, right? Not to sell the company, not Definitely. To, for the amount, not the terms, but I think really closing the stores. and, and Closing the store and, and, and especially, the yeah, the, yeah, the people that I've worked with for some of them nine years uh, to say, I'm sorry, um, there's no room for you anymore here. So that, that made me decide that after the, uh, the exit, uh, for three months, I was involved in helping these people find another job. And, uh, yeah. yeah. I think you handled it really well. Also, with uh, to, to, to get an understanding from the board of uh, uh, employees. Sorry, the, the works uh, council. Yeah, the works council, etc. Yeah. So let them also be involved. Yeah, yeah we, we got a positive advice from the works council, even though we had to close the store. I think that's pretty good accomplishment. You eventually decided to sell to Nine United. Um, what was the reason you chose them, or they chose you? What, what, what was the reason for this marriage? Uh, I think it's it's it's, it's uh, especially a strategic uh, decision because we see in e-commerce there will be one uh, uh, winner in Europe. Uh, so you have to become the biggest in Europe uh, because of the inventory, the cash management, and all the things. Like Zalando, there's only one winner. In every sector, you see the same. Um, and I think together with Nine United, a group is created of e-commerce parties that will become the market leader in Europe. So to become part of that movement, of that company, is uh, is very interesting and is probably the best way to, to keep Flinders uh, alive. How long do these negotiations take? How long where you uh, finally, when you knew, okay, this is the, the this is the, the the people we want to sell to. How long did it take for you to get to an agreement? Well, I think there are two different agreements. The first agreement is about pricing valuation, and I think that was done in a few days, actually a few weeks. And and how did this go in 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 COVID times? Did you did you zoom? Did you send emails? Did you? Yeah, we never saw each other in real life. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty crazy. Yeah, it was a few phone calls and sometimes a, a Teams meeting. Um, but after the agreement on evaluation, then, you know, the real stuff happens and the, all the talks with the, with the lawyers and about terms and the conditions, and that actually took two to three months. Is it? It's that, a little bit the boring part. Yeah, but, is uh, that a long time, Jan? No, it's not a long time. I think uh, it's, it's really bizarre how long it normally takes, but uh, th you see this a lot, yeah. And maybe without going into the details too much, what are some of the points you um, you negotiate about with these lawyers? And I'm asking because I can imagine that a lot of the listeners are, <laughs> are want to get a sort, sort of feeling. What are the points on the table? Yeah, I think to put, to put it very simply is that, you know, the, the, the buyer is putting a lot of money on the table and they want to be sure as much as possible that what they buy is really there. So if you say it's a great company, they want to know it's a great company. Also, two years later, there are no dead bodies in the in the closet or something. I don't know how you call it in English. but Yeah, so the uh, due diligence part of looking yeah, through, so going so through the books. A lot of things can go wrong also after the, 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 the selling part. And you want to have that in writing that um, 
I think it's mainly it's certainty, right? It's also about yeah. that the cash is in the company, that they're the right contracts, right IP, etc. I think that's the yeah. most important one. Valuation is just a pretty small part, right, of all the, yeah. of it's the negotiations. So. It's interesting because all, that's all the media writes about. Fully agree. Yeah. And I, I think if you sell or, or even buy a company, right, evaluation is important, but uh, there are other things which are, which are at least so important. So yep. yeah. Like the store. Like a store. <laughs> hey, who, um, uh, can you tell us about the negotiation? But, uh, because that also went a little bit different than what we normally see at P Capital. How did that went, uh, especially with the uh, uh, last buyer eventually buying the company, Nine United? Yeah, uh, Nine United is, um, is, is owned by a pretty eccentric uh, guy. He's uh, very well known in, uh, in, uh, in Denmark. He's pretty rich, to be say. I can. I, I think I can say that. Um, and he actually said, "I always want to talk only to one person. I only want to negotiate with one person, and it can never be an advisor. It can never be a lawyer." So most of the time, that's actually you see, right? No, no. Only the money. So I only want to talk to one guy or girl. Um, you can pick who it is. Most of the time, it's a founder. So it it uh, it was me. I actually did all the negotiations, also about the, the shitty stuff. I had to do it all myself together with him. And so it was pretty amazing. Normally, and, it, and that's pretty pretty bizarre, right? Because yeah. uh, uh, if you sell your own company, that's logical. But as a founder, you will sell your own company, but also the company which is owned by other people. And not always the interests are fully aligned, right? Because we have we have also another interest in in a lot of cases than in this case Geert Jan has. So we trusted as a VC, but also RTL, also the other shareholders. We had so much faith in Geert Jan doing these negotiations on behalf of us. Because normally you would want to have a seat on the table. Yeah, or, or normally we would have a seat on the table, or our investment banker, what, who we hire for this. But, but normally, but now <laughs> normally not a founder. But in yeah. this case, this 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 trajectory went so strange, and also this guy uh, buying the company is pretty eccentric. Yeah. Also in his approach, we decided to go for that route. And but it says a lot for, for also on the trust that we have in Geert Jan because we we depend fully on him as a founder. And I know the best advice in at one point in the negotiations was, okay, Geert Jan, stop negotiating. Because I know I like it, I see it as a game, but I, we knew all together that if we would go on and on and, you know, uh, asking more and more, this guy uh, was able to go out and stop. With yeah, the just walk away. Never come back. One of the, yeah. the, the, the rules of, of, of exit negotiations, which I've read in a lot of books, is you, you always have to walk out at one point yeah. to make a statement. Did so you do it? That was my idea as well. <laughs> <laughs> you want to put your hand on the table but yeah, you can hear you it to say I'm going out yeah. this, yeah. Yeah. No, this is I, it <laughs> I definitely have become angry at sometimes not, not at this person but at, at, his, uh, at his colleagues <laughs> uh, I didn't cry but I was a little angry but uh, no I think we yeah, it's, at, at it's, some it's point very hard to, to walk out in a digital meeting as well yeah that was pretty strange right um, what's your personal plan for the future? What's your next step? Yes. You're a free man. I'm a free man, so I can do what I like most to do, and that's uh, start a new company, become an entrepreneur again. Always. Uh, uh, entrepreneurs start back there. Yeah, company, and right? also Sorry. a little bit of investing in young uh, companies, but um, I just started two companies already in the first month. <laughs> after. <laughs> Uh, but I, I am Special glad to say I can do it a little bit different than I did with Flinders because I have a little bit of money now, so I can hire good people. 
Mm. Um, I won't be too uh, operationally involved. So that's making it even more fun, I think. That's always what they say, right? When an entrepreneur sells his first company or her first company, then the second company, he will do completely the opposite of what he did at the first company. So what you see a lot is that the second company fails. And the third company is the company that you typically should invest in. So I wonder what are the two yeah. ideas so that if I invest <laughs> in you, I should put my money in. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think we'll go now for worldwide dominance. So yeah. okay. this will be a good uh, one. Aim big, aim big. Can, yeah. can you tell something what, what the company will do uh, briefly? Um, simply companies? said, it will be a circular wholesaler. So we'll sell uh, bio-based circular materials to the uh, furniture industry and the uh, interior business. Mm. So we're not doing retail anymore, but we want to supply better materials that are circular, actually, bio-based, uh, instead of all the toxic, uh, shitty materials that are being used at the moment. Yeah, and more and more woods are used for that, so you bring it back. Yeah, so we make it circular. Yeah. And next to that, I'm, uh, I just started together with a few friends, a SaaS company. But that's another thing. Uh, ah, that's the second one. That's one I yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We'll continue this conversation yeah, later. I, I think um, uh, in a year I'll... Now, in this final segment, we make an educated guess about devaluation. Um, and you, Gert-Jan, can only reply with the words correct, higher or lower. Let's listen to one of uh, the members of P-Capital uh, who reads a column about uh, devaluation in the Dutch Financial Times. Right, all right, all right. The moment we've all been waiting for, or rather the juicy stuff, what everybody wants to know, the valuation. The purchase price of Flinders was actually not disclosed. So the leading financial newspaper here in the Netherlands pronounced, excuse me as I butcher this, het financiële dagblad, or simply the FD, for all my fellow English speakers, decided to try and figure out how much Flinders was acquired for. So they looked at different documents and they created a little calculation and they ultimately arrived at evaluation. I looked in to see what steps they followed, and I'm gonna present them here. We can follow their logic and then see, okay, how much was Flinders bought for? First, the FD dug up the annual report from RTL Netherlands, the investor, who invested in Flinders in 2017. At the time, RTL invested 3 million for 20% of the company. That put Flinders at a 15 million euro valuation in 2017. Then the FD looked at Flinders revenue in 2017. At the time, Flinders had a 10 million euro turnover. So a 10 million euro turnover and a 15 million euro valuation means that Flinders was valued by RTL with roughly a one and a half times multiple. So a 1.5 X revenue multiple. Fast forward to last year, Flinders sold 27 million euros of good. They had a 27 million euro turnover. If we take the same revenue multiple as before, so one and a half times or 1.5x, that would put Flinders at around 27 times 15 million at around a 40 million euro valuation at the time of exit. The FD also looked into their competitors. Flinders is, after all, not alone in the market. So the FD researched into the IPO performance of West Wing, which is the German-based competitor, and West Wing went public in 2018. Their share price is roughly two times higher, so 2x, than their turnover, which is a pretty big step up, so 1.5x times or compared to 2x revenue multiple. 
Assuming Flinders was valued by the market similarly, their 2x 27 million turnover puts Flinders at around a 54 million valuation. So, Geert-Jan, what is it? Now, of course, you know, I cannot say anything about it, but I have to a little bit, I believe. Um, I would say it could be a little bit lower. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to this very first episode of The Big Exit Show. We hope you enjoyed today's program. If you did, please subscribe to our show at Spotify or your local podcast platform. And if you have any feedback, please send a message to podcast at peak.capital. My name is Remy Gieling and my co-host today was Johan van Meel. Thanks again for listening and we hope you join us at the next episode.